You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Right on, right on. Go ahead and have a seat. We're so glad you're here today. Open your program. Take out the outline because I believe that God's got a message for you here today as we start a series called Spiritual Warfare. Now, how many of you in here, you like movies? You've seen some summer blockbusters. You like movies, you go to the movies. You like renting movies. I love movies. Movies are incredible to me. I love that they just create this opportunity for both emotion and for story. And I think media like that is one of the greatest mediums to be able to communicate story. And so I love them. I've seen some epic flops in my time. How many of you have wasted money on epic flops at the movies? Yes, I have too. Just some epic flops that sometimes, and other times I've seen just amazing movies that resonate with my soul. Like the movie just makes, it moves me. And I'm like, that is just like the greatest thing ever. I want to be a different person leaving the movie than I was when I came in because movies have the capacity to touch our heart and our emotions through the medium of story. And in order for there to be a great story in a movie, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the great epic movies, they all have three elements that must exist in any movie for it to be an epic story. And the first one is this, they need to battle the fight, they need a beauty to rescue, and they need an adventure to live. And you gotta have all three. And the beauty to rescue, it could be a person, it could be uh, an animal, it could be rescuing and restoring maybe a building, or it could be bringing justice. But you've gotta have all three of those components, a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, and an adventure to live. I mean, if you've seen Ocean's 11, you got a battle to fight, you got a beauty to rescue, you got an adventure to live. You see Ocean's 12, check, check, check. You see Ocean's 13, there's no beauty to rescue, epic flop. <laughs> they were missing it. What was the first two movies? They had it all. What did they miss? They missed that in the third movie. Spider-Man always has all three, a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, and an adventure to live. The Avengers movies have all three. It only takes you 20 movies to figure it out. <laughs> They've got them all. You just got to watch 500 movies before you get there, right? They've got them all. And so it's important. Those three things must exist for there to be an epic story. And where does the original story come that resonates with our soul? Why do certain movies with those components resonate with you and me unlike anything else? It's because the original story is God's story. He's the OG. He's the original. He's the one who said, listen, I've created a beautiful world. The world has fallen because of sin. My creation people are in danger because they are condemned under their own sin. There's no hope for them. I must enter that world through the person of Jesus Christ. I must step into that world and sacrificially sacrifice myself to rescue the beauty, these people that I love. And there's an adventure once they are rescued, once they have been redeemed, Redeemed. Once they've been bought back by Jesus and they know him, their story moves from insignificance to ultimate significance. And it's a beautiful thing. He is the ultimate story. He's the one. He is the one who originated the greatest story of all time is the story of Christ. Now, this can only happen because God recruits you. You and I, we accept job opportunities and we accept uh, offers. You enter into a love relationship because you've been recruited. Somebody is pursuing you. You'd like to be with them. You'd like an opportunity. And I want you to think for just a minute that doesn't recruitment change everything? 
Like, for example, if today you could get recruited as you left church, you got a phone call and you got recruited by the best sports team, you got recruited by the best department, the best opportunity, the best relationship, wouldn't it just change your world? Wouldn't it change your story if you got recruited? I want you to think for a minute, who would that be? If you could get recruited by any sports team or any department or any job opportunity, what would that be? I want you to think about it for a moment. All right, now I want you to nudge your neighbor and tell them what that would be. If you could be recruited by any sports team, any department, any business, any opportunity, what would it be? Nudge your neighbor and tell them right now. Awesome. All right, well, wrap it up, wrap it up. There's a lot of recruiting going on. And you just got to know, if you got recruited by any of those things, it would ultimately change your story. You'd be like, I'm making more money. I have a better opportunity. I'm going to change the world. You just think of great things because you think about the epic story. And here's why you need this sermon today. The story of you fits into God's big story. And when you wrap your mind around that fact, your story goes from potentially being a meaningless flop of self-indulgence, of apathy, of just survival, and it goes to having a feature role in the most epic story of all time. That when you understand that the story of you fits within the big story of God, and it only happens because God recruits you. Isn't that a unique idea? That God is recruiting us, that we were lost in our sin, but he gives us this opportunity to have significance in life one that we didn't have on our own. And in the book of Ephesians, we see how this good news story of Jesus affects believers' everyday lives. God the Father planned throughout history for Jesus to create this multi-ethnic forever family as a community of followers. And it's comprised of Jews and non-Jews, and these follow the, the, and form the covenant family that God promised to Abraham long ago. And this is his big plan. This is his big desire. And they didn't always see it at times. The Jews for centuries thought it was just about the Jewish people. But God has revealed this mystery at just the right time. And in unity, we live as the body of Christ and make a difference in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our families because of God's grace, his love, his goodness to us. So Ephesians tells the big story of God. You're going to see that chapters 1 through 3 tell God's big story. And then chapters four through six show how our story fits into God's big story to make a kingdom impact on earth. Why don't you go ahead and watch the screen and watch this video. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story, personally, in our neighborhoods and communities and in our families. So let's dive in and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purposed to choose and bless a covenant 
people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1 verse 10 that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Wouldn't you want to be recruited by the winning team? Like, so no one, none of you in this room are like, I want to be recruited by the loser team. None of you said that when you want to be recruited here. And none of you said, I want to be in the company that's going to get sold next week and not make any money because they went bankrupt. None of you said that. And you really want to get recruited by the winning team. And you were recruited to life by Jesus. Uh, the truth is the battle has been fought. It's already been won by Jesus, and our job is to declare that to other people, that good news and redemption, forgiveness is available to them for their sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we have a real enemy. When you watch a movie, the evil in the movie or the injustice in the movie has to be really bad. Like you have to be sitting there and hate what you see so that it raises the need in you for a rescue for that problem, a rescue for that condition. And the evil has to be really bad for the good to be really, really good. And so what happens is, it is bad. They, we have an opposition. We have an evil one, the devil, he is real. And part of our worship, when we worship God, is that we are declaring that the battle's been fought and it's been won by Jesus. And that we are, have the opportunity to tell people that you do not have to lose the primary spiritual warfare. You don't have to lose the primary spiritual warfare. When you think of spiritual warfare, you think of like angels and demons and all sorts of like maybe weird stuff or edgy stuff or, or like just battling your own thoughts and your inner person and, and you think of those kind of things. But I want you to understand what primary spiritual warfare is. The primary spiritual warfare is missing out on heaven. That's where the battle starts. Are you going to heaven or not? We live in a culture of casualties. Jesus said in regard to those who would follow him, he says this, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrows the road that leads to life and only a few find it. See, the spiritual warfare is what we're talking about in this series. But make no mistake, 
All other spiritual warfare is secondary to the primary battle. And the primary battle asks this, are you heaven bound through Jesus or are you hell bound on your own? Because the message of the gospel says that no one deserves heaven. It says that all of us are fallen. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and we deserve hell. Wouldn't that be a weird thought to think, well, what do I deserve? I always think about what I deserve. I deserve this, I deserve that. You actually deserve hell. We all do. Because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But God said to my great love, I'm going to reach, I'm going to draw people to myself and I'm gonna offer eternal life, but it's gonna be through a narrow gate. There's a big wide freeway and on that freeway are many that will go to destruction, but there's a narrow path. There's one way to heaven and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. So there are two primary errors when we think of spiritual warfare. One is that we overemphasize spiritual warfare. There are people who see like a demon behind everything. They get sick. They're like, a demon is affecting me. You know, they, they just see a demon in everything. And they, they begin to just think anything wrong. And the funny thing about that sometimes is they begin to name it. Well, that's just the demon of, you know, procrastination on me. And, and so we name it so that you don't actually have to take personal responsibility, right? You just give everything a name and then maybe see a demon behind everything. And that's going to be overemphasizing anything about spiritual warfare. The other primary error is underemphasis. Like, you just don't think it actually exists. And let me tell you, sometimes if spiritual warfare doesn't exist for you, you might want to question whether you are spiritually alive. But underemphasis, you just don't believe it exists. Our world tries to make it Hollywood. Our world tries to, like, sweep it under the carpet. Our world tries to, you know, wash it away and come up with a logical explanation of it. But you got to watch that in that conflict, there is a balance. Jesus at times cast demons out of people. But other times, he healed people without mentioning the demonic at all. Not everything is a demon. Yet there are some. Let me ask you a question as a believer, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you saw a demon get cast out of a person, literally, would it cause a crisis of faith for you? Would you say, oh my gosh, I, I didn't believe that actually ever happened. I, and you, yet you've read the Bible, you see Jesus doing it. You say, well, I, of course I would believe that there's demons out there, that they're real somewhere, but if it actually happened, would it make you absolutely freak out and have a crisis of faith? See, that would be, if that's the case, you're underemphasizing it. If you see a demon in everything, you're overemphasizing it, and there is balance. In fact, Paul tells us that we're to battle the sinful desires that already exist within ourselves, as well being aware of the schemes of the devil. There's a balance. It's not overemphasizing or underemphasizing spiritual warfare. So Paul, this church planner who started a church in Ephesus, writes to the church as we saw from prison. And he's basically saying this, there are things going on that are leading to the decay of a society. In Paul's day, his culture was so much like ours, you'll find it uncanny. The things that were leading to the downfall of this huge, massive Roman empire were these, listen, they had almost zero moral restraints. They expressed evil in all sorts of ways. They had unchecked greed going on in there. They had the celebration of violence. They would just love it and celebrate violence. They had the decay of the family unit, and they had a loss of respect for authority. And when you listen to that, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound like ancient Rome. That sounds like America, doesn't it? School teachers of the last 30 years, you've watched firsthand a disrespect for authority 
You've watched firsthand what it looks like to be on the mission field among young people today who are growing up in a culture that is in celebration of violence, a culture that has lost all moral restraints, the culture that has lost shame and yet lives under the burden of shame. Sounds a lot like America. Sounds a lot like California. And so this book, the book of Ephesians, will have a lot to do with relating your life right now. If you have your Bible, open with me to Ephesians chapter one, beginning with verse one. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely has given in the one he loves. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. He takes a breath right there and he continues. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, there are three categories by which God discloses his truth. And you're going to look in your circle groups at the second half of the chapter in a little more detail. But we're going to start here. And I want you to understand that when God discloses truth, there are three categories by which he discloses his truth. The first is... Truth he reveals to no one. To no one. God is God. He's not obligated to tell you or me or anyone else. There is truth that is his alone. In fact, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our children forever that we may know all the words of the law. So God's going to reveal some things, but there are secret things that he doesn't tell anybody. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Secondly, there's truth revealed to special people throughout history, but can be accepted by anyone through faith. So we look back at history, and we look at Noah and his family, and they are saved through this massive flood on the ark with the animals, and they land, and they get out, and there are now clouds in the sky, which are scary because previously the scriptures are clear that before Noah it hadn't rained on earth. And so they get out and they look up and they see this massive rainbow that God puts in the sky. And he says, I'm putting it there as a sign that I will not destroy the world by a flood ever again. Not an entire flood that covers the whole earth. I'll never do that again. And that's good news if you're Noah. Because if you got out of the ark and the next time it got rainy, you saw the clouds coming. You think, back to the ark. We're going to die, right? God's going to get us all again. But God said, I made a covenant. I made a sign. And to this day, when you and I 
are outside and we see after a storm that symbol in the sky of God's promise that he'll never destroy the entire earth again with a flood. It was revealed specifically to Noah, but it's accepted by faith to all those who believe even now. And third, truth that God kept secret for a period of time, but finally disclosed to people in the New Testament. This is what Paul is referring to here. He's got an intentional plan throughout of history. And initially, they thought that the salvation was for Jewish people alone. And God reveals in his mystery that it's open to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, people like you and people like me who are not of Jewish heritage. And he says, no, my plan all along is to create a multi-ethnic forever family under my love and my grace by his truth. And so it's a beautiful thing. God's big story listen to me, is to recruit you into his forever family by his death on the cross. You might want to write that down. His big story is to recruit you into his forever family by his death on the cross. Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Let me let you know that when it says adopted to sonship, he's not being non-gender sensitive. What he's saying is this. He's saying when you're adopted by Jesus, whether you're male or female, that you're adopted to Christ, in that moment you are given the full authority, the full rights of the family, the full belonging and acceptance that the firstborn son would have in that culture. And to a woman who would read this passage, they would be like, what? That's radical to us. We kind of read over and go, why do you, why do you say sonship? Why didn't you say daughtership? The truth is he's saying you get the full rights. You get the full authority. It's a beautiful thing. He's elevated all of our status to that. Not just being a son of your mom or your dad, but a son or a daughter of the most high God whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased. There's several terms in there that I want to highlight for you today. They highlight the wisdom, the forethought, the purpose of God in a way that may not be apparent to everybody here. The first one is, he said he predestined us. He predestined us. And you say, well, what in the world is that? Well, in verse 5, it shows us that God chose us in eternity past. He draws us and recruits us to be holy and blameless. He chose us. He draws us. And he recruits us to be holy and blameless, not because we're holy and blameless, but because of Jesus Christ. We receive his righteousness and all our sin is given to him. So he chose the church to be out of love, to be adopted into his forever family. We're recruited out of God's love. Second, he said the mystery of God's will. And this is the wise plan of God, which he makes known stage by stage, that there's a mystery to it, right? Picture in a battle for a moment. Not every soldier in a battle understands what the big picture of the battle plan is. All they know is I received orders and my job is to do my part. My job is to do my orders. I don't know the big picture plan. I don't know how it all fits together. But what I know I do, I'm trusting that there's generals and other people up above that see the big picture that will help lead us toward victory. But my job is to do my part. And so often in the church, we begin to wonder, well, you know, is there a big plan? How do I fit in the big plan? And I want you to know that God knows exactly how your life fits into his big picture and in his big plan and that he's got a significant role for you to play and the story of you will only make sense within the big story of God. 
number of years ago, uh, talking about predestination. You might have heard of like people arguing about predestination or free will, election, and all these things. And a number of years ago, I was in seminary and I got hungry. And because I'm single and I was in seminary and I was very poor, I went to Taco Bell. And so at Taco Bell, I go up to the counter on the inside of the store and I'm ordering my lunch. And behind me, I hear some familiar voices and it's two guys who also were at seminary with me and they're at Taco Bell and they are arguing loudly about predestination or free will. Which is it? Predestination or free will? Like, you know, which one is going to be and how does God save? And they're arguing and what happens is they begin to argue louder and louder and louder and louder. And I'm like, I look around, I'm like, all the, everybody in the restaurant is like looking at them like, who are these nerds, right? And so I get my tray and I walk over and I say, hey guys, I just sit down and say, hey guys, listen, if you figure out today here in Taco Bell what scholars have argued for decades and if you find the exact balance, be sure to let me know, you know, because they're making this big ruggish and I'm just showing them like, look at, you're making yourself look foolish inside of other people. Why? Because we try to grab God and force him into the mold of our thinking. Francis Chan says it's like trying to take the entire Pacific Ocean and put it in a two liter bottle. It just doesn't work. And just because you can't wrap your mind around it doesn't make it any less true. So they're arguing about it. And Isaiah 55 verse nine said that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there are some things that we will never understand but some people are convinced that you can take God and fit him in the mold of your understanding. And listen to me. The fact that you can't rationalize these two truths in chapter one of Ephesians makes them no less true. Just because you can't wrap your mind around it and figure it all out doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that there is some mystery in the will of God Write this down. God doesn't just make the plan. He makes the plan work out in you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, he said, We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in the conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So you begin to look and you begin to see that God is the one who works. He works he works it out. He works out the plan in you. He not only called you to his plan, but he begins to work out on you and me from the inside out how that plan works out. It's better than us. We're so convinced that one wrong move, God throws out us in his plan. Like he's done with us. And God says, no, no, no. I am working out my plan in you according to my goodwill, according to my purpose. That's what he does. And the, the Greek word for Work, like to work it out, is the word energeo, from where we get energy. And it's not that God's your energy drink. It's that God is really, he's the one who energizes you in your inner person. He energizes you as the power source. He is the completer. He's the one who not only offered us the opportunity, but once we believe, we hear it and we believe it. God gives us his Holy Spirit and he begins to work his plan out in us. And his plan began long before us and his plan involved us. But I want you to know that there's a danger. That's the epic story. But the danger is we have an enemy. And I want you to understand this. The lie of the enemy is to convince you through shame that God won't work it out in you. Through shame. See, appropriate guilt says I did something wrong. I need to repair it. 
inappropriate guilt called shame says you did something wrong, so you are wrong. And God says, no, I came to make what you have done that is wrong and cancel it out and give you my righteousness. It's a beautiful trade. It's a beautiful thing. We need that so much. But the enemy wants to cause you and I to be ineffective. So he wants to convince you through shame that God's not going to work it out in you. But I want you to know that God doesn't make mistakes. And we will battle with shame or a lack of confidence or a fear of what others think. But I believe that there's a satanic message that causes many Christians to become ineffective. And it's this. The satanic message of shame can be described in three words. And maybe one of these resonates with you. The first one is incompetent. Incompetent. An incompetent says you can't do it right. And you just can't do anything right. You can't do it right. And unfortunately, sometimes these messages have been reinforced in us by family or our workplace or growing up in a not great environment. But they'll say you're incompetent. And the enemy wants to convince you that when it comes to living for Christ, that you're incompetent, that you don't have what it takes. But we've looked already this year and seen that you have everything you need to live a godly life in Christ. Second is insignificant. Insignificant says you won't amount to anything. You're just not going to amount to anything. Try all you want, but you're just not going to amount to anything. And the third is unimportant. Unimportant is the message that you don't really matter. Whatever you do, whatever you try, fine, that's what, you just, you're not important. Let me tell you, parents, you want to be careful not to communicate unimportant to your kids because if you're on your cell phone all the time or you're absent or unavailable, you just inevitably communicate to them you're not important. You're unimportant. You want to be available to them. You want to help them. You want to engage them. You want to communicate that their story makes sense within the big story of God and God wants to work out and do great things in and through them. See, the truth is the battle has already been fought and Jesus won. So our job is to tell people that there's good news through Jesus Christ, that there's freedom, that they don't have to become a casualty in this war. Ephesians 1.13 said, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So listen, here's the process. You hear it. Somebody's got to speak it, you hear it. So a friend tells you the good news of Jesus, you're in church, you hear about it. Someone had to stand on the stage and talk about it for me to believe it when I was younger. You hear the gospel, the good news of salvation. Then it says, when you believed, so we hear it, and then we receive it, we believe it, and then we are marked with him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Write this down. God gives us his Holy Spirit as a secure deposit, guaranteeing salvation and the work of God in our lives. And I want you to grab this idea that that statement right there is the counterbalance to the messages that you're unimportant, that you're insignificant, that you're incompetent, that the truth is you have great significance. You have great competency because God's gonna work it out in you and you're incredibly important in his big picture plan. And he said you were marked with a seal. Now, if you got kids, you got to let them know that's not the animal by the ocean. The seal is like what would happen when a person in authority had a signet ring, and they would take wax, and they would put their seal, their symbol, in that wax or in that clay early on, and they would attach it to a letter. They would attach it to whatever they were casting their authority on or whatever communication they had. And it's a seal. The seal is incredible that he talks about that because to a person in Paul's day, they would all think of that. 
It's the authority. It's like saying this is a letter from the president of the United States or whatever, right? It carries that authority. And the people who acted out, acted out under the authority of the president because they've been given that authority. You and I, we are marked with a seal and it has four components. Write this down. The first one is security. Here's how a seal works. No one can break the seal unless their authority is greater. So no one can say this doesn't count unless their authority is greater. And no one is greater than God because what Paul is arguing here is that God's authority, God's seal is upon us. That at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes inside us and that Holy Spirit is God. And no one's authority is greater than God. So you have security in your salvation. Second, there's authenticity. It's not a fake. It's not a counterfeit. It is God's seal, and it's his work, and it's his Holy Spirit. See, the problem is when you begin to think, oh, it's my work, and my work's not good enough. No, it's God's work. It's his seal. It's his authority. It's his Holy Spirit that he puts inside of us. It's not something you conjured up. It's not something that somebody else gave you. It is God's Holy Spirit indwelling you when you receive him. Next, it's a completed transaction. It's done. Let me tell you, there are no hidden fees. Jesus' death in my place completed God's plan. I'm completely saved, completely forgiven, and I don't need any savior other than Jesus Christ. And all too often people are saying, well, I want to have Jesus Christ, but I still think I need to earn my way into heaven. I still think I need to be good enough for him to accept me. And we begin to put up performance next to acceptance, and we begin to elevate performance and say, God must not accept me. And what God is saying is this, I accepted you. I made it secure. It's authentic. It's my Holy Spirit. It is a completed, done deal, done transaction. And last, it's under my authority. Authority. Anyone acting under the seal acts under the authority of the owner of the seal. So you have authority. And when you and I act, we're acting on behalf of Jesus Christ's authority, which has been given to us. So what happens in spiritual warfare is this. If the enemy is oppressing you, if he's troubling you, if something's going on, it's not you conjuring up. It's not you getting yourself more spiritual. It's you standing under the authority of God saying, you know what? Hey, listen, I'm just representing for the man. It's like God's standing behind you with his hands on your shoulders. And you're like, hey, man, it's not me. Like, honestly, I'm just, I'm just representing for the authority. Take your argument there. And that's what we see in spiritual warfare because it's the word of God. It's the truth that we need to know. It's how Jesus countered the temptations and the attack of the evil one on him. He spoke the word of God back at the devil. And the scriptures tell us in Matthew 4 that the devil left him. So those of you who might think that God and the devil are like equal powers, not even close. The devil is not the Lord of hell. God created hell as a place to send the devil. He's going there. Hollywood makes it think like he's the manager. No, it's the place where he is going under the authority of Almighty God. And that is a beautiful thing. So that's how spiritual warfare is. It's not my power confronting the attack or the shame or the intimidation. It is the word of God. I'm representing for the authority of almighty God. So spiritual warfare is countering the devil's schemes by acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, the seal of God with security, authenticity, a completed transaction, and with his authority. 
So we need to know the truth. Why do you read the Bible? Oh, because there's great facts in there. No. Why do you read the Bible? It's because you need to know the truth because the lie, the attacks of the enemy are the things that are going to derail you. They're going to derail me. They're going to sideline you. They're going to sideline me or they're going to self-deceive you and you will not take the narrow path. You will find yourself on a road that leads to destruction. So we need the word of God. Do we read the word of God because it's inspirational? No. It's kind of creepy sometimes. It's kind of violent sometimes. There's a whole lot of violence and sex and just messy people in here, which is great because it means we can relate. This is not an inspirational reading. Go get a poem for that. This is the word of God, and we need to know it. It's not our own word. And the beautiful thing is we have to submit our feelings, our shame, our opinions to the authority of the word of God. Instead of saying, well, I'm going to see what about the word of God I'll receive based on my opinion, my authority, my thinking. No, it's God's authority. It's his seal the Holy Spirit puts in us. And that Holy Spirit begins to woo us away from destructive, stinking thinking and bring us to the truth and the freedom that's in Jesus Christ. So listen, you're being recruited. Even right now, you're being recruited to be part of God's forever family into his work and his love and this multi-ethnic, forever beautiful family. And the question is, will you accept the feature role that God has for you and will you respond to his invitation and be saved? Or are you going to listen to the enemy? Because I believe there's a defeated enemy who hopes you don't. He hopes you don't accept it. He hopes you keep going like you've been going who hopes that you give into a lesser story of self-indulgence or apathy, and sadly, you would eventually join him in hell. This is a primary spiritual warfare. As we go into talk about spiritual warfare later on, the armor of God, some other things, listen, the primary spiritual warfare, the one that many people miss, is this. Are you, through faith in Christ, going to heaven? Or is the enemy deceiving you to end up with him somewhere else? Jesus today is recruiting you to his epic, big story. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life, I want to just challenge you for a moment. If today you're realizing, as you think about your life, you're saying, I have never given faith to Jesus. I've heard it, but I've never chosen to believe it. And God's done all the work, and he's drawing you, and you take that step toward him, which is giving faith to what he did on the cross. And if that's you today, you want God's Holy Spirit in you. You want to go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. You want God to forgive you of all your sin, and you pray a prayer like this right where you're seated after me. Just pray, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross because of my sin. I ask you to forgive me for all my sin. I believe you were buried in the grave and that you rose to new life because you are God. And I ask you to make me a new creation on the inside. Give me your Holy Spirit. Wash me as white as snow because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, anywhere around the room, if you prayed that prayer today, will you raise your hand? Just right where you're seated. Hold your hand right here in the middle. You two, awesome. You two on the front. Greatest decision you can ever make. Over here on the right, greatest decision you two could make. Anywhere else as I'm looking around the room, if you're in the loft, some of my friends will see you up there. Anywhere else. God loves you. And let me just say, for the believers in the room, this is your moment of decision. Incompetent, 
insignificant or unimportant. Believers in the room, which one of those three is the enemy using against you? And in this quiet moment, would you just take a moment and counter the lie of the enemy with the love and the truth of God's security and his acceptance. So you declare it in prayer right now. You declare it. You speak against those three. God, would you activate our church? Would you make us the kind of people who are not arguing theological details and missing the lost people around us, but that, God, you would call us to be light in darkness, that you would call us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light, that, God, we would live as people who are refreshed and renewed by your Holy Spirit, that we are changed, and, God, that we would live as part of the epic story. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.